Good morning. My name is Brian Sorgenfry, one of the pastors on staff. Really delighted y'all uh, chose to join us. Uh, when the power wasn't on at like 1020, I was like, uh, I can't print off my sermon. I'm going to have to wing it. And uh, someone out in the lobby said, I thought you always wing it. So I don't know whether that was encouraging or uh, not, but uh, I do have something written uh, to share. So uh, as we as we're walking through Matthew, what we're saying every week is that Matthew is putting before us this long-awaited hero who's going to set the world to rights, and his name is Jesus. And before we read this text, I want you to consider the person here that's going to interact with this hero, Jesus. Because this unnamed man who now, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, is known as the rich young ruler, because that's it. Those are details mashed together from all three synoptic gospel accounts. This rich young ruler, here's what I'm thinking about. If we're honest, most of us aspire to be just like him. We want what he has. He's got the life that all of us are shooting for, okay? He's, he's rich materially. He has enough money to take care of himself, family, be generous to others, and, and be comfortable. He has his life together not just financially and material, but also morally and, and in, in the community. He's a well-respected person in the town. Everybody knows him. Everybody wants him around. And goodness, here's the thing, though. Everybody knows he has it together. If you talk to him, he would actually have the integrity to say, actually, I don't have it together. Because he had the integrity to ask Jesus and admit that he feels like he's lacking something. So he knows he doesn't have it together. So if you want to put it in kind of today's terms in Oxford, okay, this person would be, let's say, a woman who finished near the top of her class uh, while getting her master's in speech pathology, has been working for five years uh, in a clinic helping kids and stroke patients kind of learn to talk, has a great income, is generous, well thought of in Oxford, gets invitations to all the social events, but sometimes has to turn them down because she's committed to a nonprofit in the church and her family and doesn't have time for everything. That's who this person would be. Or if you're in college and this person came through Rush, you know what you'd say about this person? That's a good dude. Uh, has a, that guy has a hunting camp that we could use. That guy's going to help out our GPA uh, and, and is well-liked. So he has the life that most of us want. And here's what's interesting. He's outside the kingdom of God. He has missed eternal life. Thus, the shock of the disciples that you'll see where they say, well, then who can be saved? And so I just want to put that before you. This passage should make most of us uncomfortable. But if we hear it and if we follow where it leads, it actually, because it brings us to Jesus, will lead to salvation and freedom and the good life. So let me read for us uh, Matthew 19. I'm actually only going to go through verse 26. Sorry, it's my fault. There's a misprint in the bulletin. Here's Matthew uh, 19, starting in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you'd enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? 
And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Okay, so I want to follow this story with this man as he faces Jesus, which is going to be our first point, then as he misses Jesus, and then we'll have here an invitation to actually treasure Jesus. Okay, face misses treasure. So first, facing Jesus. This point is completely from Tim Keller, okay? Just know that. Okay, if every week, though, we're looking at this hero who, who sets the world to, to right, who brings life, I know this is going to sound a little bit elementary, but we, if that hero's name is Jesus, we have, to, we have to see that we have to be facing him. That is this the real Jesus we're interacting with? And And this man, he comes to Jesus and he asks, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man knows there's something lacking in his life. And he's come to Jesus to ask about a new kind of life, eternal life. And the man's response as he walks away from Jesus in grief, this is what I want to suggest. That walking away shows you he's interacted with the real Jesus, with God in the flesh, the one who is good, like Jesus says, with life itself. Why does this man's interaction with Jesus show you he's met the real Jesus? Okay, imagine this, uh, imagine this scenario, okay? This is a fun scenario for me to imagine. Imagine it's uh, November 9th, 2024, okay? Ole Miss football, led by Jackson Dart at this point is 9-0, and all right? So undefeated, and Georgia is coming to town. So it's a 6 p.m. game in Oxford. At what's going to, at 5.45, undefeated Georgia, undefeated Ole Miss, there's about 62,000 people in Bolt Hemingway. What's happening? Energy's pumping into the stadium. Uh, you know, music's blaring. Everybody's on their feet. And then when Ole Miss comes running out of the tun- tunnel, there will be an explosion of noise. I'm talking men and adult men and women will be screaming their lungs out, pom-poms waving, uh, people stomping the bleachers. And from the visitor section where there's Georgia fans, you'll actually hear some boos and some hisses, right? That's what will happen. Of course. Of course that's what will happen. It has to be the case. Because if that game actually happens, the reality of that game, the stakes of it are so high that the reactions will either be going nuts, crazy, or booing and hissing. The one person that you should have no patience for in the stadium is if there's a person sitting there scrolling on their feed, looking at TikTok, bored, and saying, hey, are we about to leave? That person does not get it. That person shouldn't even be in the stadium, right? And that's a silly example, but this man's interaction with Jesus lets you see if you face the real Jesus. Because when he tells him to sell all that he has and give to the poor, he offers him treasure in heaven. He offers him eternal life. And both those statements are wildly shocking if you really put them together. And this is what Keller says. Jesus asks, or maybe you could say he demands from us far more than we ever thought. 
He says, everything that you have is mine. Let it go. Your time, your money, your family, everything, give it to me. But then at the same time, he offers more than you ever, you ever uh, dared hope. Eternal life, following him, joy, comfort. The way that you know you've, you've faced the real Jesus is he actually shocks you. He wants more from you than you thought, but he gives more than you ever dared dream. And I guess that's my question is, has that actually happened to you? The rich young ruler, because he interacts with the real Jesus, because he hears what Jesus really says, he walks away grieving because he, he was offended. He understood the call. And this happens all throughout the Gospels. When people interact with Jesus, it's one of two things. They're either sad, offended, or mad, or they worship him. The one thing that they never do, because this is impossible with the real Jesus, they're never apathetic. They never just like, ah, okay, and go on about their day. And that's the question. Has that happened to you? And what you realize is that's not just a once thing. That's a lifetime of walking with Jesus. If you've been a follower of Jesus a while, here's the test for you. Do you see far more of what Jesus requires of you today, 10 years into following him, than you did 10 years ago? At the same time, do you see that he offers you far more today than you realized 10 years ago? That The joy and the life that he offers you really is better than you thought. And if not, that's okay. Just ask yourself, maybe I haven't seen the real Jesus. And go to his word. Keep listening. That's who he is. So that's what it looks like first to actually face Jesus. He, he demands, he asks for more than you thought, but he gives so much more than you ever dreamed. But then you, then you see that he actually misses him. See, this guy misses Jesus. He misses eternal life, and he has it all. And when he asks Jesus, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the first little kind of window into this man's life. He assumes, think, think about it, he assumes if I'm going to find real life, if I'm going to be in the kingdom of God, loved by God, then I got to do something. I got to possess it. This man is admitting, he's admitting there's some kind of lack of surety in his life. And so what Jesus says is, okay, keep the commandments. Jesus presses him on what is the good life, what eternal life actually begins to look like in your life, and it's following his commandments, right? If God is good, like he says, the only one who is good, if God is eternal life, then the Ten Commandments are his will. They're coming from a good God. And so the evidence that you have eternal life is the commandments are good to you. And you begin to follow them. Because at that point, you're trusting the goodness of God. And so he says, which ones? And Jesus lists five through nine and then summarizes them by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, I, I, well, I've kept those. What do I lack? Now, look, I, I don't think we should be snarky here. Th th this man is trying to assess his life. And he's looking at himself and he's saying, I've, I've done those things. I've done the best I can. As long as I can remember, on a horizontal level, the way that he is he's treating other people, he's relatively good. But he says, I'm still lacking. And this is where Jesus goes with like the physician's scalpel straight into his heart. He says, okay, sell what you possess and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Man, what Jesus just painfully and lovingly did 
is he applied the first commandment, thou shalt know there are gods before me, straight to this man's soul. Jesus saying the problem underneath everything else for this man and actually for us, the reason that this man is missing eternal life, the reason that you, he's saying the reason you realize you lack the good life is because you serve another God. And the name of that God is money. And so sell it. So when Jesus tells him to sell all his possessions, Jesus is going after the wedge that is between him and eternal life. It's the stumbling block. And Mark's account actually tells you that Jesus loved the man. And so he loved him enough to address the wedge that is between him and Jesus. If you've read or uh, really it's pretty powerful if you've actually seen uh, this part in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf, the great wizard, he comes to Bilbo Baggins' house at the Shire, and Bilbo has been in possession of this ring, this ring of power. The whole, the whole story is about trying to destroy that uh, power. And Gandalf asks for the ring, and Bilbo's had it for a long time. And Bilbo starts to get angry, and he says, I found it. You can't take the ring. And Gandalf says, there's no reason to get angry, Bilbo. If I'm angry, it's, it, it's your fault, says Bilbo. And then he says, it's my precious. You can't have it. And the movie actually does this really well because Gandalf gets very serious and very big. And he says, Bilbo Bag- Baggins, don't take me for some conjure of tre- cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And then he hands it over. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going after the thing that is keeping this man from eternal life. And he asks him for the money, and the man walks away because he thinks Jesus is trying to hurt him. But he's not trying to hurt him. He's trying to help him. He's addressing the wedge. And so, yes, the sell all the possessions and give to the poor is not a particular command for everybody, okay? When Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus, who comes into the kingdom of God, he doesn't tell him to sell it all. He gives half away. And you don't find these other texts where Jesus tells everyone to sell everything. And if you're like me, that makes us go, okay. But I'm going to come back to that because that reaction, I think, is pretty telling about us, okay? But the general call really is for everybody. The general call to give this up and to follow Jesus is for everybody. Why? Because everybody has a God. Everyone is serving some God. And Jesus says it elsewhere. He says, you cannot have two masters. You either love the one and hate the other. And for this man, the God that he grasped, the thing that he held on to that made his life work, that made him feel secure, that made him feel significant, his treasure was money. And when Jesus tells him to sell it, Jesus tells him to sell it because he has something better for him. Here's what you realize about this man. This man didn't possess money money possessed him. He thought he had money, but money actually had a hold of him. It mastered him so that he could not leave it. Bilbo didn't possess the ring. The ring possessed him. And so this is my second question for you. Has Jesus done this to you yet? It's not going to be a one-time thing, but we haven't met the real Jesus. We haven't entered eternal life if we haven't had another God disturbed in our life and begun to be uprooted. 
And one of the signs of a false God in our life, you ready, is that we think that we possess it, but it actually possesses us. We think we have it, but honestly, it has us. Um, one of my family's favorite movies in the past decade was The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman, right? He plays the character of P.T. Barnum uh, who created the circus. Uh, and this plays out in front of your, your, your kind of... Uh, eyes the whole time as you're watching, that he wants fame, he's incredibly creative, he wants money, and he's creating literally the greatest show on earth. And he's putting his time into it, his talents, everything he has. And the movie shows this, he, he, you th- he thinks he's possessing fame and success. But by the end of the movie, he realizes he can't give it up. And he's losing his family, he's losing his friends, everything is burning to the ground. And he actually recognizes as he sings this song from now on, and I won't sing it, but he says, he says, I drank champagne with kings and queens, the politicians praised by name, the pitfalls of man I became. For years and years, I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. He was realizing I wasn't controlling fame, it was controlling me, and he couldn't give it up. And so it's worth asking, what in my life actually masters me, even though I think I master it? What possesses you, though you think you possess it? <clears throat> um, kids, I bet, I bet you've experienced this. Like, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're athletic and you think you're mastering a sport and you become very good at it. You play baseball or softball for your school or baseball on weekends. All that is great and you're good at it. But if you have those moments where, I don't know, you lose, <laughs> or you really blow it in the ninth inning, or you meet somebody that's better than you at softball, what happens? You get mad. You feel bad about yourself. You, you, you hate that person that's better than you. Don't you see you haven't mastered the sport. The sport has mastered you. It's telling you who you are and you can't lose it. We've seen this in our, in our culture with, with just power, right? The Me Too, Me Too movement, however you feel about that, one of the great things it does, it exposes this, that people with power take power and, and use that to take advantage of others. But what happens is when that, when that, when that abuse starts to be uh, exposed, what happens? And that power, instead of giving it up, it possesses them and they uses their power to, to quiet it, to get rid of it, because they can't give up the power. You see it in romance. I used to see this all the time in college, Right? I know that the way that this guy or this girl treats me isn't right. My friends have expressed concern about him or her. But they just stay in the relationship because, because the relationship controls them. It masters them. They can't imagine getting out of it. It's too scary. And yes, we see it with money. I mean, how many times, like, you might be making a pretty good living, business and savings are going well, and we think, I'm in control. I'm mastering money. I'm pretty good at this thing. But how often do we talk ourselves into thinking, okay, not right now, but the next phase of life is when I'll start being generous. I can't do it now because, because I'm newly married. Or I can't do it now because we're about to have kids. I can't, and I always think the next stage of life is when I'll start giving away. But you know what the secret is? The next stage of life, <laughs> there's more stuff. And I look up and money still possesses me. I'm not possessing money. It's possessing me. 
And the, the reason that Jesus says it's harder for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God is because the God of money is that dangerous. I wouldn't be honoring the text if I didn't say that. And if you're in, if you're in Oxford, including myself, money's the deal. Money is the easiest way to feel independent of God, to feel like I've got this. When Jesus said you can, no one can serve two masters, you're going to hate the one and love the other. He didn't say, therefore, uh, no one should serve God and sex. or no one should. He said God and money. It's the thing that he said. Which means following Jesus means our relationship with money has to change. It has to. And it's incredibly revealing how quickly commentators and even myself quickly point out, hey, he didn't tell everybody to sell everything. And I'm like, whew. But because we so quickly point that out, I think show something about our heart. Uh, one commentator said this, because money rules the world and discipleship, discipleship to Jesus is a protest of love against this government, he has to alter our dealing with money. According to Jesus, the rich do not have an advantage over others, but actually are in grave peril because of their riches. And that just, I don't love that. <laughs> But it's really interesting. Follow Matthew. Matthew says all kinds of people, when they hear Jesus say, follow him, they give up, they give up their nets, they give up their families, they, they leave tables, but, but the one person will not leave money. And so Jesus is loving the rich young ruler. He's loving saying, if you want to know what's lacking, if you want to know real eternal life, let that go. It's why Jesus will say, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Yourself is what your heart locks onto for life. And so to leave that false God is going to feel like death. But on the other side of it, Jesus says his real eternal life is real treasure. And so this man misses Jesus as he walks away from real liberation, real freedom, real eternal life. His money and possessions are still intact, but he's missed life. He's missed the good life. Which brings me to my last point, Right? If facing Jesus means he asks more than we ever thought, but then he gives more than we ever dare dreamed, and then uh, he, he comes after us and, he, and he, he starts disturbing the other gods in our life and calls us to leave those, and the rich young man who has it all walks away sad, it makes us ask what the disciples ask. How in the world can anyone have eternal life then? How can anyone be saved if this is the call? And the answer is by treasuring Jesus, right? Jesus says what is impossible for man is actually possible for God, that actually it can happen. And I find it interesting that the last thing that he tells the rich young man is me, follow me. When the man asks about eternal life, he starts with God by saying, well, only God is good. And then he ends with himself, God himself. Eternal life begins and ends with Jesus. It's all about following him. It's found in him. And here's what I want you to hear. Jesus doesn't simply call for denial. He doesn't say just deny yourself or just give this up. He actually wants something bigger for you. He wants something better for you. He actually always offers something better. He calls it treasure in heaven. So he doesn't say just deny this. He says, and take what's better. Because Jesus knows the way our heart works. You've heard Les talk about this. You've probably heard me talk about it. Thomas Chalmers, an old theologian. 
He calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. He says this is a way that our heart works. Here's my example. I have a neighbor, okay, he's about three or four years old. He comes over every day. He comes over every day for some candy, okay? And when he's intent on getting candy, he incessantly asks for it because he knows where our pantry is. He knows how to get into it. There's no, there's no way to keep him from getting candy, except yesterday I discovered there's a way to keep him from getting candy because he showed up and he asked for candy. And I said, hey, I said, I got donuts this morning. And he goes, I'd like a donut. I said, would you rather have donut than candy? He goes, yes. Very interesting. All of a sudden, there was something better than candy, and it was a donut, and he didn't care about the candy anymore. That's it. That's the expulsive power, in a silly way, of a new affection. Your heart has to treasure something. And the only way it'll let, some, let, let that treasure go is if there's something better that it's seeing. Your heart treasures things. That's what faith is. Faith is just what you treasure. And Jesus knows you can't stop treasuring people's acceptance or stop treasuring money or stop treasuring fame or whatever it is. You you can't stop treasuring in the same way you just can't stop breathing. Treasuring is the lifebeat of your heart. The only way you stop treasuring money, fame, or whatever is if there's something better to treasure. And Jesus is offering himself as the treasure that you long for, as the treasure in heaven. He's saying, give yourself to me, entrust yourself to my lordship, to my hands, and I promise it's a better treasure. It'll dethrone everything else. And for Jesus to dethrone everything else, for us to see that he's the treasure, we have to see that he actually treasures something. Jesus actually has a treasure, and we talk about this all the time. You realize, like, Jesus gave everything up. Jesus, in a sense, sold everything that he had. 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he is rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus had it all. And he left the comfort of heaven, the riches of heaven, the fame, the notoriety, and he came down. He became a poor Jewish man. And he ends up on a cross where he loses his clothes, his life, his dignity. He dies as a loser. And he ultimately loses fellowship with God the Father. He takes the wrath of God for my sin, for all of our disobeying the commands. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he do that? Why does he sell all those things? Why does he let all those things go? Because he had a treasure that's you and me. He would rather have you. And that makes him rich. The thought of having you with him forever makes him rich that he gives up his beauty. He gives up his riches so that you can have it. So that you can have his righteousness. So that you can have his love. So that you can have his power forever. And Jesus is no man's debtor. No matter what you leave for him, he will repay in spades. With himself, with his people, he is offering something far better. And so I'll end by saying this. Okay, okay, we say, all right, so how do I do it? How do I treasure Jesus? You ready? It's impossible. Jesus just said, it's impossible with man, but with God it's possible. It's a miraculous transformation that happens from God to us, and it's a gift of grace. 
So how do we do it? You ready? You become like a child. The antithesis of the rich young man are the children in verses 13 through 15. These are little kids, like probably one, maybe maybe two years old. So don't think 10-year-olds, think an infant. The rich young ruler has everything. He's impressive. He's self-sufficient. He's independent. A child is utterly dependent on other people. Cannot get anywhere unless a mom takes them. Cannot, cannot eat unless a mom feeds them. Dependence is the lifeblood of a child. And Jesus says, to them is the kingdom of heaven. So I was trying to think of an illustration of this to kind of end. And then I thought about my own kids, okay? Like, when Clark, especially Clark, when Clark was like, you know, two, he broke everything in our house. I mean, he broke toys and doors and he cost us so much money. <laughs> and when he was an infant, you know, he cost us sleep. He cost us food to feed him. He can't do anything at that age. We had to do everything for him. And you know what? It was awesome. It was a delight to do it because he was mine. And Jesus says there, to people like that belongs the kingdom of God. Those who are that needy that all they can bank on is grace. Jesus obeying because we don't obey. Jesus forgiving because that's what we need. It's the free goodness of God. This is the good news. He came for us. Yes, I don't treasure Jesus like I should. Okay, get needier. Become like a child. Ask him. Ask him for faith. Ask him, ask him to help you see that he's the treasure, that he's the one who forgives and cleanses. He'll do it. Come to him with nothing to offer. And you'll realize that he's full of grace, that he's the treasure. Keep going with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. I thank you for um, this man that, is, that comes to see Jesus and gets what you're asking. Um, and here's the call. I pray that we would hear the call this morning. It is uncomfortable. Um, it is, it is hard to trust you um, with stuff. It's hard to trust you with ourselves. So help us to turn and see the cross that you have given us evidence that you love us uh, with an abounding steadfast love and that we can entrust ourselves to you. So that I pray that we would do that and we'd see that we are your treasure and you'd help us start treasuring you. In your son's name I pray, amen.